Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. So before I get going again, I just wanted to take a minute to talk a little bit more about our event tonight because apparently has not been communicated to some of you what time to show up, where you should be, etc., etc. So just as a housekeeping type of thing, I want to tell you that if you show up at the front door of the Sheraton, there will be buses that are leaving every 10 to 15 minutes. They are returning from the venue as well, from the boathouse and going to and from every 10 to 15 minutes. So if you show up anytime between 6 and let's say 10 o'clock, because if you show up at 11, you might not be there in time. Um, <clears throat> if you show up at the front door, you will be able to get on the bus. It will take you to the venue. Once you're there, short bus ride back, anytime again between 6 and 11 o'clock at night. Does anybody have any other questions about tonight's festivities? Okay. The name of the guy, by the way, the two-time Canadian Idol contestant is Greg Newfield. I know that you all are familiar with him. <clears throat> so, more about brand building. In general, no matter whether you're talking about social, search, display, whatever it is, at the very top of the funnel, you need to have awareness. If people do not know who you are, they cannot hire you. So, as a general rule, the first thing that you want to do if you're coming in from absolutely nothing, you do not have a brand out there, you have not published anything, is start to generate awareness. Some of the tools that are available to you, we've already talked about today, ads are a great way to generate awareness, especially on social not necessarily the best way to close clients, but a great way to get people to understand who you are and what it is that you stand for. L lower down on the funnel is consideration. So at the time when you manage to get out that article, that article has made its way onto your blog just in time for tax season, for example, or just in time for T2 season, whatever it is. At that point, when there's a meeting between time and space where that person sees your article, they might consider your services. From there, you want to have preference. Once they've decided that you're the preferred provider, they'll then make a purchase. Hopefully, things go well. You provide excellent service. After all, you're all above average bookkeepers. And then you will end up with loyal customers who are happy, especially since you've managed to engage with them through social media over and over and over again, leading to that loyalty loop of multiple engagements, long-term relationship, perceived loyalty, and therefore trust, leading to advocacy, where your clients become your biggest salesman. Any questions about this so far? So a really good channel to uh, position yourself in terms of awareness, consideration, within that purchase funnel is through search engine optimization, which is what we call SEO. I just had a quick question. Brian, would you say that, like I use Google Blogger, and I've heard that's very powerful in terms of Google because they tend to lean towards that instead of WordPress, but other people seem to think that WordPress is more important than, I don't know if you want to address this now or later, but I thought it was a question that needed to be asked. I think since we're talking about SEO, it's a perfect time to answer the question. And thank you very much for it. And uh, I'm going to put that over to Leandro because I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
WordPress is actually a very robust platform when it comes to SEO. So they do have a lot of um, SEO plugins. I'm gonna go a little bit technical here um, within the space, but you can actually go in there and you're able to input in your descriptions, um, your title tags, um, even the images that you use on your SEO pages or content pages. It actually helps if you actually put a description behind it so that just in case the page does not load or it's um, rendering for someone who's visually impaired, they're able to um, read or even have an audio that kind of describes what that image is. So long story short, uh, WordPress is actually very robust when it comes to uh, SEO content building. Sorry, I, just one second, I think. But I heard that Blogger is favored by Google, which has the search engine. So Google that, does tend to prioritize its own products. Um, but to, yeah, no, no surprise. Yeah, no surprise. Um, actually, we, we, we do have a very close tie with Google. And uh, what Google values more is actually content. So what they did before was they prioritized Google+, Blogger, et cetera. It just did not have that traction for users to really adopt. And then if they stray away from content and if people are using, if they're producing valuable content and they're using a different platform, that's not theirs. Kind of like what their mentality is and what they've communicated to us is that they will favor content over platform any day. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is that your content is relevant and your content is recent. So if your content is relevant to your audience as they search for, your, for, for information about whatever it is that they're interested in, you have a higher likelihood of being seen regardless of what platform it's on. But uh, from my experience, WordPress tends to be a little bit easier for the, the first time user. Um, it's something that has an infinite amount of plugins. Uh, so just generally, it's something that you ought to consider. Um, although I do love Google's products. Good example actually here is a platform that we're using uh, within these, uh, for these search results. We're actually using a very outdated CMS system, but as you can see here, when you do a search for inheritance tax credit, you have two results coming in from an intuit.ca uh, domain, which is TurboTax. Another example would be last year when the CRA came up with the um, autofill my return, where you can actually auto import your taxes into uh, your, your return. We actually created a lot of content around that. And the key here around SEO is that, as I mentioned earlier, that it may be very difficult for you to compete against the bigger names and the bigger brands. But what is it that uh, you really specialize in? And if you can take a look at the, these niche areas where you may not get a ton of volume, per se, of interest, but if you add them all up, it can actually um, add into a very significant amount of uh, traffic and awareness for your, for your brands. So again, if you take a look at building content where you are an expert in, and when you're building that content, you're very cognizant of actually providing value instead of selling a product, there's a very, very good chance that uh, you will rank highly on these search engines. And what happens there is that you actually cover the entire purchase funnel. Because when people are searching and they see, your, uh, they see your brand out there, they see your firm, they see your practice, that's an awareness play. 
so that when they're ready to convert, you'll be top of mind because every time they've had a pain point, you were there to answer their uh, questions and you were there um, to be able to provide value. Anybody have any questions on SEO before we go any further? Nope. Let's talk a little bit about goals more generally. Um, how many of you are aware of the SMART way of goals? I'm not sure that that was English, <laughs> but I'm glad to see a few of you are aware. So SMART means specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-sensitive. You can see it up on the screen. Um, when we set goals for ourselves at Intuit, and I highly recommend that you apply this to your own practices, these are the ways that we do that. So when we're trying to apply these things to digital marketing, think about it in terms of what do I hope to accomplish specifically, not just I want more people to know about me. Think about numbers. Think about specifically who those people are. Is it measurable? Because otherwise, what's the point of doing the thing if you don't know whether you did it or not? Is it achievable? Because if you set yourself up for success, you'll be in a good spot. But if you don't, and you're setting yourself up for failure, it's going to get depressing real quick. Is it realistic? And is it time sensitive? So in other words, you should set a timeline for yourself as well. Let's talk more about your brand. Hopefully you guys recognize all these brands. Could I have some volunteers, please, to provide me with examples of brands that they admire and tell me a little bit about why. Marty, would you mind waiting for the microphone? <laughs> I said Costco. I love Costco. And why do you admire them so? Um, what do they great, stand for? They have a great return policy. Um, they have good prices. Um, yeah, good unique answers. Pro unique products and not too much overchoice because I get like catatonic when I go into a big department store. So Costco is awesome. Thank you for that. Yes. Anyone else? Come on, I know some of you have to like some brands. Tannis, back in back in the room. I apologize for the delay. We're just running that mic over there. Lululemon. Ooh, good one. Why do you like Lululemon? What do they stand for for you? Um, they stand for flexibility and comfort because that is the whole, a big premise of how I run my practice, my bookkeeping practice at home. Flexibility, like comfort, and style. I like it. Can I get one more volunteer? We got one all the way at the other side of the room. We're trying to get you your exercise today. <laughs> I'll reach that point. Wait, where am I going? There we go. Chapters in Indigo, they've okay. got, you can go in-store or online, and I can get everything for me, my daughter, and my grandson, one shopping trip. Love it. So now I'm going to ask you guys to be really brave, and I'll understand if you can't do this, but if you were to ask your clients what your brand is today, what would they say? Come on, guys. Somebody has to have something to say about this. Okay, We've got one over there. Tax detective. 
proactive. Anyone else? Reliable. These are all great things for people to think of you. Accurate, I love it. Is there something that you wish your clients thought of you in terms of your brand? Fun. I think people already think that about you, Marnie. That's cheating. So what makes a brand great? These are some of the, the, the things that you guys should be thinking about in terms of your own personal brands, but also in terms of your practices. Number one, the story has to transcend the product. You are all experts when it comes to compliance, especially compared to me. The fact of the matter is, though, that your clients are coming to you not just for compliance. You guys know this already. We've talked about this before. We all think we're above average. The fact of the matter is they're coming to you because you stand for something. What it is that it's, you stand for, whether it's awesomeness or reliability or proactivity, all these things are great. The brand has to make people feel or think differently about your product or your category. So in other words, if you ask me about my bookkeeper, I don't have one, by the way, but if I did have one, I would tell you that my bookkeeper does things completely differently than everyone else. He or she does an awesome job of looking after me in a way that others could not possibly replicate because that person is just a great person. In order to accomplish this, you need to have a unique voice. So you need to figure out what is your particular value proposition. Does everybody know what a value proposition is? Okay, I'm assuming yes. You need to figure out what that value proposition is and come up with content that is going to amplify that effect in order for you to have the maximum impact. And it has to be an authentic voice. The fact of the matter is, again, like I said, consumers today extremely, whether it's B2B or B2C, whatever you want to call it, they are very sophisticated and they will sniff out inconsistencies in your approach when they meet you. If you don't jive with whatever it is that you've put online, they will sniff that out. It needs to be authentic. You have to actively demonstrate value and relevance. If somebody is interested in someone who's going to prepare their T2s for them and you don't do it, that's not very helpful for them to see an article that you've written about T2s. Does that make sense? And lastly, it has to be consistent. Consistency is a huge driver of consumer behavior. If we see someone that says one thing one day and another thing the next, people immediately get suspicious of it. So let's not be inconsistent to the extent that it makes sense. Only a fool doesn't retain the right to change their mind. Let's make sure that we are consistent. The last thing that I want to point out about this topic is to say, to remember, it isn't about how your work contributes to the compliance. It's about how your work contributes to their lives. Think about what the customer benefit is to having you as their bookkeeper. Let's get a, I would like to actually ask you guys, would somebody like to volunteer and tell me what your customer benefit is to your client beyond just compliance? Uh, I had a client talk to me the other day and he said he liked to call me because he knew no matter what his question was, as a new Canadian, I would find the answer. I love that. I think that's a great example. Somebody who's resourceful. So he knows that he doesn't have to fend for himself. You are putting his mind at ease. The customer benefit, I would say, in that case, is being able to go to sleep at night. So if you have clients that feel that way about you, 
and that's something that you want to stand for, that is a great way to convey yourself and the benefit that you bring to your customer. Let's talk a little bit about how you can find your voice. Because in your content that you are going to be presenting, you're going to have to have a particular way of presenting it. In, in honesty, it needs to be something that's authentic. But in order to find that authentic voice, it can sometimes be difficult to do. These are some of the things that you will probably stand for. My guess is most of you feel like you stand for all of these things. But these are some of the ideas that I would suggest to you that you start with in terms of finding that voice. You guys want to be the ones who are empowering your clients to make smart decisions that are going to, number one, save them money, but number two, allow them to sleep better at night. You want to be the ones who are providing the insights so that they can maximize their profits. And you need for them to understand that these are the sorts of things that you bring to the table and not just mere compliance. Compliance these days, I'll be honest, our computer programs not just Intuits, but just generally are able to do a lot of the things that years ago could only be done by a human. What people rely on from their bookkeepers, especially above average ones like the ones in the room, is that insight, is, that, is the idea that you are empowering them to make the right decisions for their companies and the right decisions for their lives. I won't go through all of these, but certainly there are probably a few of them at the very least and possibly all of them that you'll want to include as part of your voice. A couple of do's and don'ts. And uh, this is obviously a quote from Star Wars. <coughs> be concise, not like me. Be bold and be actionable. So you want to make sure that you are being as concise as possible, especially on social media. People don't read anymore. There was a study done by the BBC a few years ago that said that nobody reads past 300 words. In fact, very few people read past 50 words. And if you take a look at the BBC News website, you'll find that they write in a particular style that gets the gist of whatever it is that they want to say out in the first 50 words. There's a reason for that. In fact, on Twitter, the statistics that I, at least that I've seen, and the numbers that I've crunched, historically have suggested to me that the optimal number of characters for a tweet is zero. That's not a very interesting tweet, but statistically, as short as possible wins the race. Always maintain your humanity. Don't act like a robot. If you are putting stuff out there in a way that makes it seem impersonal, people are unlikely to want to form that connection with you. And again, if we're all good bookkeepers and there are many ways to be compliant, the reason that people will become sticky and loyal and advocates of yours is by being a great human being that they can relate to on a human level. You'll want to distinguish your voice from your competition. Some of the ways that you can do this are by coming up with a niche, for example. We've talked about that earlier. Niches can be very helpful in a number of different ways, but you'll also want to present yourself as different. In a crowd of bookkeepers, how do you stand out? Some of us are, and when I say us, I mean you guys, um, some of you are marketing yourselves as cloud bookkeepers. Others are saying you're on the go. Others are saying I'm an in-person bookkeeper, an old-school bookkeeper who will come to your place of work, and I will bang out the numbers there. However you want to be seen, be different. Again, remain consistent. Don't try to be cool. That's another thing that I've learned over the years. Um, 
I don't know how many of you text your significant others, LOL, if it's not actually laughing out loud. Eventually, people will see through that. If it doesn't come naturally to you to send emojis, don't send them. Make sure that you are not force-fitting your voice into an irrelevant subject matter. So um, if it's something that you're not interested in, and if it's something especially that your clients aren't interested in, you have no, busy, no business blogging about it or writing about it, microblogging, whatever, and assume that professional means robotic. So it is not something that you should do to write out professional long-form sentences, unless that's the kind of person that you want to be known as, an impersonal bookkeeper. And again, I would suggest to you that that is the wrong decision in this marketplace. I'm going to talk a little bit about content and how you should decide what it is that you want to write about. So again, repetition doesn't ruin the prayer. We're going to talk a little bit about stuff that we talked about earlier. We're going to touch on it in a little bit more depth. Number one, be where your clients want to be, or be where your clients are, rather. Know your clients in that kind of a detail, and it will be very helpful. In terms of the content that you want to put out there, it is tempting to think to yourself, I can just put out content nilly-willy. I can put out whatever it is that I want. People will consume it. Not true. As much as I'm interested to know that you guys offer certain services, if all that you do is advertise, people will tune out in a real hurry. In general, the way that we suggest that you approach this in social media is through the rule of thirds. So about a third of what you write should be promotional. Totally okay for you to put something out there that says, hey, I'm taking on new clients. Guess what, guys? Totally fine. As long as it comes along with you sharing something that would be of relevance to your audience and to your potential customer base, and as long as you're also sharing another third of stuff that you think would be relevant that you've come up with personally. This is generally a, a best practice. You will have to adjust according to the results that you're seeing. In terms of valuable content, generally, these three things are what make for content that is engaging. Now, it is very tough to predict what people will find inspiring, educational, and entertaining. So you need to be really in touch with your clients. I would suggest, as a way to start with, pick your favorite client, take them to lunch, and ask them more generally, not just when it comes to bookkeeping, what they find interesting, what they find educational, and what they find inspirational. I would also suggest to you that you should pick three to four content themes, or pillars, depending on how you look at it. The way that you'll want to pick these is by putting together these different interests and trying to figure out where they overlap. So in terms of figuring out what are your goals, and remember we talked about smart goals, specific ones. So let's say that your goal is to reach more people this year than you did last year. Then you need to convey how your brand could be valuable. So if you're the reliable bookkeeper or if you're the proactive bookkeeper, and then combining that, with what it is that your audience actually needs and looks for. When you've combined these three elements, they are very powerful. Again, it's difficult to do, but once you know your customer, you can achieve these things. These are examples of the sorts of content pillars that folks like you might consider. 
So I'm just going to leave this up there for a minute. I'm not going to read them out to you. Um, but at the end of the day, what you want to do is figure out what things should be consistently present through your social media and through your branding. So regardless of whether you're putting out a banner ad on another website or whether you're putting out a tweet or whether you're putting something on Google+, you name it, you want to make sure that the messaging is consistent. The more consistent your messaging, and Leandro can, can attest to this, the more likelihood of generating good SEO, the more likely that if somebody is scrolling past their timeline really fast, and I know none of you have ever done that on Facebook, the more likely it is that you are to recognize that this is coming from, for example, your bookkeeper or from a prospective bookkeeper. So these are some of the things that you might want to include consistently throughout your social media. Pick three or four of them as a best practice and then make adjustments as you see fit. How do I know the right frequency to post? Ultimately, it's going to depend on how busy you are. The truth of the matter is you're all very busy people. I'm very aware of it. You guys work your butts off. But you have to figure out how you can possibly put in as much content as you can as long as it's relevant to your audience. The truth of the matter is the only way that you're going to be able to do this once you figure out the right cadence or how you would figure out the right cadence is to try different possibilities. And once you've narrowed that down to the right cadence for you, how you're going to optimize for the most number of eyeballs, for example, or how you're going to optimize for the most number of engagements, at that point, you'll want to make sure that you are keeping this in a content calendar that looks like something that's on the screen. Anybody have any questions about content calendars? Right here, Brian. Yes. Uh -huh. Where do you get this content calendar from? You mean the specific example that's on the screen? Yes. Uh, so you will be given a copy of this deck, I believe, someone from the IPBC here? I believe you guys will have access to this content through the IPBC's website. Uh, following the uh, following the the conference, um, and if not, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I will be happy to share my coordinates with you. And if you're on Twitter, it's at IntuitBry with a Y. I will find you. <laughs> <laughs> so, will this be comparable to Hootsuite? Hootsuite is a tool that will allow you to schedule your your tweets or your posts to a variety of different sites, social networks. Um, this would be the plan. This is the overall goal where you'll write down what it is that you want to publish on each one of the platforms. So it's sort of the, the precursor to using Hootsuite, if you will. Um, this will allow you to track your, your progress uh, by having it all written out in advance. The other thing I would warn you about a tool like Hootsuite, um, there are a number of other tools, by the way, like TweetDeck uh, that, that, or Sprinkler that allow you to schedule your tweets. There was something that happened a couple years ago that was tragic. In Toronto, the band Radiohead, we all know Radiohead, um, so they had a concert, and uh, this giant tower, I don't know what the tower was for, collapsed and ended up killing a couple of people. And because of that, there was no show that night. Now, the social media manager for the band scheduled a tweet to go out that asked everybody what their favorite moment of the concert was, and guess what? It still went out. So be very, very cautious when you are scheduling tweets, especially knowing that you need to be within arm's reach of your phone if you've scheduled something, 
because otherwise you'll want to pull the tweet. And I apologize, I realize it's a very tragic example, maybe an extreme one, but these sorts of things do happen. Another question over here. Um, I just wanted to know what you thought about um, tweeting across multi-platforms, one particular, or, or sorry, posting along uh, all the multiple platforms at once, sharing, for example, on Facebook and Instagram all at once. Is it not, all that multiplication, does it not become too much? Kelly actually, Kelly Parks, uh, who's sitting in the audience, who brought this up to me during the break, She's waving her hand, she's right behind you. Um, so the idea that you should do what you can. Um, there is no real downside, to my knowledge, of posting across multiple platforms on social media the same thing, but you are not getting everything that you should be getting out of social media if you are doing that. So it all depends. I mean, honestly, most of us don't have the energy to come up with four different posts to optimize to each one of the platforms that you're probably working on. So with that being said, is, it, is there really a downside to posting the same thing on Twitter that you would post on Google Plus? If the alternative is not posting anything on Google Plus, then the answer is probably no. But with that being said, each one of these platforms is good for something else. Like I was mentioning earlier, Facebook is where you guys are checking out your grandkids and your kids' photos on Facebook. That's the place where that happens. So if you're looking for an older demographic, a more mature demographic, you would probably speak to them differently than, say, on Twitter or Instagram, where the demographic is much younger. So if you're specializing, for example, in millennials and startups, it probably would be a different message to put on Instagram than if you're marketing, or perhaps simultaneously marketing to a different audience on Facebook. So that would be the reason why you would want to put different things on different channels. And I'm just using that as an example, but the, the, it works for across a multitude of different channels as well. Right, if there are no other questions, I'm going to move on to my next slide. Remember that it's not just advertising. Remember, advertising is saying what you want to say. Content is about saying what they want to hear. It's called social media for a reason. At the end of the day, it's a social networking site. So it's all about connecting with people. It's not about, it's not about just broadcasting to people. If you use social media as a broadcast method, you are going to fail unless you have the world's greatest content. There are only a few people that are able to do stuff like that. Most of them are famous. The fact of the matter is, you should be using it as a form of networking. It's called social networking for a reason. Is there anyone in the room that has met a friend through social media? Quite a few of you. I can tell you from experience that social media not only is a great way to get brand buzz, but also a great way to connect with people. And you'll, your lives will be improved if you devote enough time, enough energy into your social media. Now let's move into our conclusions, and we can open up to questions, potentially. Let's do that now. Let's open up to questions now, if you'd like, um, to, to raise them, if we haven't addressed anything in particular. Um, and then we'll move on into conclusions and some suggested next steps for you. Um, anybody have any questions about anything that we've presented today? I did have one person, and, and we can go to the, to the back of the room. One person asked me, 
How much time are people spending on social media on a daily basis? We looked this up because I didn't know the answer. It's an hour and 40 minutes a day, nine hours a day by teenagers. So <laughs> nine hours a day on, on social networking sites by teenagers. If you are specializing in startups, probably a good place for you to be. Leandro actually looked up how long people are spending on YouTube. I'll let him tell you about that. Yeah, YouTube is about uh, 40 minutes a day. So between average. the two, that's uh, quite a bit of time people are yep. spending on social media every day. By comparison, television, the, the gentleman that mentioned was something like uh, was three or four hours, I think it was. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, Sonia, could you just comment a little more on the idea of if we outsource this task to somebody or get some social media person to do it for us and having to do it ourselves? What's sort of the mix in there? What so there are certain things that I believe you can do on social media that you could outsource. One of them is having someone spend your advertising dollars for you because that can be quite time consuming. It's more mechanical than it is anything else. It's usually the way that you would work it is you would put down a predetermined amount of money on a social ad and if it's performing well, then you double down on the amount that you've put on it. If it's not performing well, you would start to reduce the amount that you've put on it. It's just a matter of optimizing that way. That's something that you could probably outsource. Any actual interaction that's going on, any community management between you and your clients is something you probably should not outsource. Um, I think the question always, though, is where does the time come from? And the hope is the firm of the future is saving time through the cloud and through technology, and that way you're able to spend more time on developing business for your office. That's the hope. The reality is you may not have time in your day to respond to your clients. If that's the case, it's better that somebody else does than nobody does it at all. But as I mentioned before, today's consumers, businesses, or consumers, proper consumers, they are very sophisticated when it comes to this stuff. They are looking for inconsistencies and they are looking for things that you would say that are out of line uh, with the way that they would expect you to behave. So if they see that it is somebody in the Philippines who's answering your question and the language isn't quite right, or if they see that somebody is answering your question in a way that is too professional and not reflective of your personal voice, chances are they're not going to have a great response. I'd like to add to that... Um when you do spend a lot of time in social media, and even if uh, you do spend a lot of time taking a look at what your customer problems are, you're building a new muscle that uh, you haven't had before. And in a way where you're getting a lot of the deep insights, sometimes it becomes like second skin when you know when you, you, you listen to what your customers want, you can kind of talk to them in a way where you can message yourself or present yourself or present your solution in a way where you would not have had those insights if you did not have that close relationship with them. So if you outsource that, you're kind of alienating yourself. And when you do alienate yourself, then you can't uh, talk to your audience as, um, as, as, as good as you, as, as you can. Kelly Parks had approached me at the, at the break. I'm calling her out here. Um, and had an, an interesting point about Google Plus that I was just wondering if, Kelly, you could raise your hand and tell us about it. Uh, yeah, hi. So Google Plus seems to be a little bit of a, an undermentioned platform. 
And what I find with Google+, I do do some social media marketing. I have a branding company as well. And I have found with Google+, if you have missed the mark on, or in general, I recommend Google+, for all of my clients, and I do use it for them. But especially if you've missed the market on your SEO with the spiders crawling around and finding your content, Google Plus will bring your SEO up in the moment. So partly because it's a, a Google platform, of course, it's somewhat preferred, but it, it, it's an in-the-moment thing. So if you need something to come up for this week or next week, you're not planning for three months down the road or you've missed the mark on the three months, it will bring it up in the moment. It will not stick. It, it drops just as quickly as it comes up. But it is also a very easy platform to post to. It, it auto-posts your photos and everything very nicely. It, it's a great one that I highly recommend. It's a good point. Um, not addressing Google Plus is just a matter of it, it is a very small marketplace and it's it's not an area that I've seen a lot of benefit in. However, with that being said, there are certain niche marketplaces where it would make sense. Kelly was saying in particular, apparently fly fishing is a, uh, there's a bastion of people on Google Plus who like to talk about fly fishing. I had no idea. Another industry that's very popular on Google Plus is the really technical industries, the programmers. If you guys specialize, for example, in startups, and startups specifically who are applications and programmers, Google Plus can be a very popular place for you, and the fact of the matter is also beneficial in SEO. The issue is coming up with people to engage with those sorts of posts is problematic. It, it can be tough to do if they are not active on that platform. Kelly, you had another follow-up. I did, and, and I'm sorry about this. Um, it's not that the fly fishing, there was a big following on Google+. It's that the Google+, the fly fishing, believe it or not, has a, quite a bit of competition. It rose through the SEO ranks quite easily. It's not necessarily how many people he had in his circle. It's that it pushed it out in the SEO in general. Got it. Thank you for that. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, the back. On your content calendar, I noticed you have your days, but is there a time of day that it is better to post than other times? Good question. So depending on the platform, Twitter, believe it or not, has an excellent analytics platform built into it. So if you want to experiment with your tweets, um, I would try them at a variety of times a day. And then if you type in analytics.twitter.com, You'll see all of the analytics behind all of your tweets. You can see how many people saw stuff. It will tell you the optimal time of day for you to, for you to tweet. Um, and it can tell you what the results were, basically, how many people engaged with, uh, with your, your tweet. On Facebook, unfortunately, at this point, as far as I know, it doesn't actually tell you that information. You would have to do trial by error. Just keep trying different times of day. See if it makes a difference over the long term. You will probably have a good idea of when your clients are interested in engaging with you. Some people it will be during the day. So uh, 9 to 5, my clients are at work, and then from 5 o'clock on, they're just not interested in anything work-related. Um, other times you'll find that it's only off hours, and you may not want, for example, to be around live tweeting something at 3 in the morning, um, but 
you can use tools like Hootsuite, for example, to schedule those things as long as you're very, very cautious about the fact that there could be something that comes up in the news. Good question. I saw a question around here. No? Well, let's hear your comment then. Google reviews is very good for moving you up in the SEO very quickly. Very good point. So uh, the comment was Google reviews can help very much with, with SEO. Um, I, I'll let Leandro handle the, the SEO portion of that, but I will say that Google reviews an excellent way for you to serve, to, to you, for you to establish social proof. Social proof is the idea that there are more people in line for the nightclub than there are inside the nightclub. How many of you have seen that happen? <clears throat> when we see a big lineup, we are intrinsically motivated to participate in whatever it is that we see. If everybody wants to ask Leandro a question afterwards, and by the way, I encourage you to, everybody else will be like, oh, maybe I should ask him a question. Google reviews, Yelp, these sorts of review sites, something that I didn't touch on in great detail in this presentation, things that you should be concerned with. Encouraging your clients, although I wouldn't do it monetarily, to write a review can be very helpful for you, especially on something like a Yelp or a Google Reviews. What we're actually seeing, too, is that uh, when you do have a review, let's say on a search result, it actually entices people to click on it to find out more, because visually, you know, you can have three or four stars. Um, there's also that word of mouth aspect behind reviews. Intrinsically, as Brian mentioned, we're a bit more curious to find out more. So I definitely agree with that comment. Uh, it does help with SEO, and it also helps with engagement. Anybody else? What about, I'm over here, Brian. No, thank you. Um, what about hashtags and uh, chats where you sign into a chat over a period of time and a number of people are having a conversation around questions? So I think it's a great question. Um, for someone like you who's a real thought leader in, in the industry, if you have a big enough following, by the way, preeminent thought leader, Ms. Reppenhagen. Thank you. Um, if, if you have a big enough following, that's an amazing way to get people engaged. You can engage with so many people through a Twitter chat, for example, and there are great tools out there. I can't think of any at the top of my head. I'm sure it'll come to me right after I'm done talking. Um, but there are great tools out there that let you follow the conversation very well without having to type in a, a search for a hashtag for the Twitter chat. It's, it's all very messy. TweetDunk. That, that's a good one. Yep. Hootsuite is capable of doing it too, but there's actually tools that will help you with the Twitter chat. Um, I think that that's an amazing way to do that. It's a great way to boost your clout, great way to boost your cred scores. These are rankings that help you to figure out how influential you are. Um, it's also an awesome opportunity just to engage with your audience. And once you see other people talking about this person, it again, serves as a tacit endorsement. It creates virality. There's an experience like that. Hashtags are becoming a little bit on the obsolete side, but are still relevant today. So eventually, Twitter has more or less indicated that they are going to be doing away with the hashtag. Facebook is using hashtags, incidentally. It's on the rise on Facebook, but on the decline on Twitter. Hashtags are essentially a way to delineate a conversation about a given topic. 
That's the purpose of the hashtag. It's so that if you're interested, for example, in what's going on in Malaysia, you could type in hashtag Malaysia, and you'll see the conversation evolving from there. If you want to have a, twi a Twitter chat about, for example, IPBC Ignite, you need to choose a hashtag that will be specific to the conversation. If you pick a hashtag that other people might confuse with something else, so for example, if you use IPBC instead of IPBC Ignite, that will help to uh, create a specific conversation having to do with the topic that you wanted people to talk about. The other thing I will say about hashtags is if you do decide to use hashtags and it's a good way to gain visibility uh, amongst people who wouldn't normally see your tweets or to see your Facebook posts if they're public, is to keep them as short as possible and to keep them as easy to spell as possible because those two things will land you into trouble. If you have a long hashtag, that means two or three or four or six less characters that somebody can put in a tweet. And the less characters that you have to tweet, the more difficult it becomes, the more likely somebody will give up on it. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Good question. Any other questions? We've got one over here. This has all been very positive, but what happens when you have negative things that happen you know, on your social media? How do you suggest dealing with that? Could I ask you uh, to maybe give me an example of what you mean? Uh, I, I'm just thinking if, uh, for example, uh, someone comes on and makes a derogatory remark about some, something that you've posted, maybe? So I think if, if somebody makes a derogatory mar remark about something you've posted and you feel like, number one, that, that may be insulting to you. If it is an insulting remark to you, immediately I would just block that person. Or if it's somebody who's important to you, I would call them up and chew them out, frankly. I would take it offline. Uh, but if it's something that's derogatory towards a third party or to another group of people, generally speaking, you have the opportunity on your own social channels to block that person or to delete that comment. If you don't have that opportunity, I would just post back and distance yourself from that comment immediately. But it's a good question, and it does happen occasionally. I thought you were referring originally to the idea that someone might leave you, for example, negative feedback. So on Facebook, there's an opportunity now to leave a review, there's also opportunities to leave re reviews on other places like Google Reviews, for example, or on, on Yelp. If somebody does that, the best thing you can do is to contact that person calmly, try to get them, you can try to negotiate with them to see if there's anything you could do to get them to elevate that score. If that doesn't work, then the next best thing that you could do would be to encourage your other clients who do have positive experiences with you to leave reviews of their own. Brian, I got a question. Is it uh, best practice to delete those negative reviews? It depends. If it's a negative review about you, and you have a lot of reviews, it's totally normal and more believable in some ways that you should have a negative review or two. Let's be fair, we're not all everybody's cup of tea, and that's fine. If we're confident enough in ourselves and the service that we bring to our customers, then we should be all right with having a negative review or two. If, however, they are completely outweighing everything else that's on that website, at that point you might consider doing it. 
So if you have that level of control and you have the option to delete that review, you probably won't, but if you do, I would advise it in the event that you only have the one review, for example, and it's a negative one. But if you've managed to create a body of clients who would, who would be willing to leave a positive review, the best thing you could do would just be to have them completely drown out the voice of the one person that didn't have a good experience with you. Back to I lead. One of the things I've found, and I've been doing this a long time, is that there are these very strange people who start to follow you, and they have nude bodies, and they have lewd pictures and quotes and things. And I have gotten in the habit of reviewing who follows me and killing those people from the list. I don't believe that my numbers should be increased by that, those people. Now, uh, there are times when I'm away on holidays and I don't bother, but most of the time I go through and delete those people. Or if they ever show up in any meaningful way, I will definitely block them. I don't believe it's worth the time to contact the company and attempt to do um, a complaint Reporting. because it's a lot of work to do that. But it is worth it to block those people and, and not encourage that. And I find when I do that a lot that they stop. It's an interesting point. It's probably true that they do stop eventually because it's just not worth it for them. Um, you do, so there are a lot of people on Twitter especially, to a lesser extent on Instagram, uh, who have bots and they're trying to get information from you that they'll be able to leverage in some way, shape, or form. So it's not necessarily nefarious. They're not necessarily trying to steal your identity. Some of them are. Others are just trying to get as much data as they can from as many people as possible, they may be trying to sell that aggregate data. But with that being said, it does not help you to have bots as followers. It may feel good to have a lot of followers, but it's not that beneficial to you in the long term. In fact, Twitter occasionally sweeps through people and just kills a bunch of uh, accounts that aren't real. Um, so I would suggest to you guys that uh, in some ways, if you have the time to do it and you are putting things up there that are personal, at that point, it's probably a good idea for you to do as Eileen is suggesting. Got another question at the back. So you spoke specifically about branding. So in terms of branding, do we brand ourselves or do we brand our company? Great both? question. So I think the answer ultimately is it depends. Um, if you are interested, if you want to be the brand, it may make sense in the event, for example, that what you want to do with your life is you want to train people, or you want to be up on stage telling people about what it is that they should be doing with their business, or talking about your experiences. I mean, you guys touch dozens of businesses each. You guys have so much amazing knowledge and you want to share that information. If that's the case, your personal brand is going to be the one that gets you there. If you think on the other hand that what you want to do is build a business that at some point in your life you're going to want to sell to somebody else, the business is the brand that you want to be building. In most cases, we probably all benefit by having both brands. That's just more work. That's true. It's a good point. You'll have to prioritize accordingly. 
So will that mean you would actually get your team then to post on your business page and for your company, and then you yourself would retweet that? You could. My recommendation is always to do your own social media to the extent that you can. The exception, as I was mentioning before, might be, for example, some advertising responsibilities. Um, but my, re my recommendation is that people are very smart these days. They will figure out in an instant whether it's you or whether it's someone on your team who's responding to them. If your goal at the end of the day is to create that loyalty loop where you end up with advocates, it's better that you're the one that's doing the actual responding. Now, with that being said, there's nothing wrong with retweeting your business's tweet or the other way around. In fact, it helps to amplify your impact because you'll probably have slightly different audiences on either one of those accounts. Got another question over here. Just a comment. Um, in our firm, there's two of us that run our social media accounts, and we find it adds that variety and provides more of the culture to, to our firm than just the business part of it all. It's a good point. The more people that your clients have touch with, probably the more opportunity there is for them to grow that connection with your firm as a whole. Anyone else have any comments, questions, concerns, complaints? Hopefully not complaints. All right, so let's move on to our conclusions and our next steps. So I'm going to assign you guys with some homework. And I would suggest to you that if you are serious about building your brand, and you should be, if you do want to grow your firm, and I don't know why the last check mark is so much bigger than the rest, <clears throat> that these are some things that you would want to do. We talked about, Leandro talked about earlier, deciding on that unit of one. So if you can figure out who the specific demographic of person you're looking for even giving him a name, giving him a face, and giving him an age, a location, a demographic, and assigning to him the problems that your customers face on a regular basis. You'll be in much better position than you were before. If you can throw something together like what Leandro had presented earlier, you'll be in better shape than you were beforehand. I would suggest to you as homework that you think about how you would like others, specifically prospects and clients, to think about you. So we know how they think about you today, or at least most of you know how they think about you today. If you haven't, I encourage you to ask your clients and prospects about this. And I think that it's a good idea that you start to think about what it is that you would like to be thought as. How does that change? Determine the content pillars that are going to help you to become that person. If you're thought of as reactive, somebody that you only see once in a while, I would suggest to you that that is a great exercise for you to start to think about how you can become proactive and how you can be seen as being proactive, more importantly. If you haven't already, at a bare minimum, my recommendation to you would be to sign up for Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Now, most of you are already LinkedIn members. Most of you are probably Facebook members. If you are not on Twitter, that would be a, a crucial one for you to do. Once you've done so, on each one of those channels, my recommendation for you would be to follow 10 brands that you admire. And you can see what it is that they do well, what it is that you should emulate on behalf of, or what you should emulate so that you can become a better brand. I would suggest that if you haven't already, and to uh, Eileen's point, by all means, if you prefer to do it on Google, 
but sign up for a WordPress blog. That's probably the easiest one to get started with because there's the most materials available to you to learn how to do it. This is something that you should do, and you should write at least monthly for the first year, putting up a new blog each month. If you can't write it yourself, I suggest you at least sign off on this stuff because it is going to be attributed to your name. The last thing that I would recommend is that you experiment with a small amount of money, and believe me, this stuff can, can you could put $10 down on ads if you wanted to, and see what the results are like on both paid social as well as something like a Google AdWords. So if you do these things, you will be well on your way to establishing your brand. It doesn't need to be tomorrow, but I would suggest that you guys get on this and get on it soon. Yeah, would you like to take us to your conclusion? I'd just like to add, um, you know, the importance of um, really finding out who your customer is, your unit of one. You need to be really um, intimate with them to the point where if you're walking down the street, you can kind of pick them out as little white elephants because you know them that well. And you know their problems, you know how to speak to them, and you know how to reach out to them. I think I just wanted to reiterate that, what Brian had mentioned over here, is that we cannot solve someone else's problems if we, if we can't even diagnose it in the beginning. Well, guys, that's the end of our presentation. Um, thank you all very much for joining us today. I'm just going to take you through a couple more slides, and then I'll let you go. First one is, again, if you want to learn more about growing your practice, awesome, this Intuit Thrive is, again, our big conference. It's happening in November in Toronto, so I realize for some of you that's a little bit far, but it would be well worth it, especially given the discount that you get through the IPBC. If you're interested in learning more, come by our booth tomorrow. There is also, and I would encourage, actually, Matt and uh, Bogdan to stand up, and I, Isaac, Isaac, Joseph, to stand up also, sorry. He's new to the company. Um, if you guys have questions about our 10 for 10 offer, which is available to everybody at the conference, normally it's only available, only targeted to certain individuals. Everybody at this conference is eligible for it. It is what it sort of sounds like. Every month you'll spend $10, uh, you'll save $190, and you'll get 10 accounts. Um, so for QBO, I should specify as well. So that, that might be interesting to you. I would encourage you to confront these gentlemen if you have complaints, questions, or concerns about it. Um, and to stop by our booth if you want to learn more about it. But it is an amazing offer. You'll never see anything like this again, I'll tell you that much. As well, I would advertise to you guys, and this is advertising, not content. Again, remember the difference, um, that we have a scavenger hunt, which I think you will all find to be a lot of fun. Um, and if you want to know more about the scavenger hunt, there's prizes. Um, I would encourage you to stop by our booth tomorrow. You can get the form. You can fill it out. It includes a bunch of fun stuff, like uh, grab... Scott, or Scott, Scott's not with us. Anybody that knows Scott Zanbergen, um, one of the items on the list is give him a hug. <coughs> Other opportunities for those of you that aren't interested in the scavenger hunt, you can also come by, you can win a Fitbit, um, filling out a survey. Uh, there's a few other ways that you can run away with some swag and it'll be a lot of fun. So with that being said, I now release you all to go build your brands and to uh, learn about your unit of one. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you.